Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a PT and an OT? How about a nutritionist and a dietitian, or a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner? If so, you are not alone. Even those who work in healthcare may be unclear about some of the roles and responsibilities of various other industry professionals. It's why we created this podcast to discuss the similarities and the differences between certain healthcare professions as well as the misconceptions. Plus, how those professionals work together to care for patients. I'm Catherine Mazone, and you are listening to Healthcare Who Doesn't. This time on Healthcare Who Doesn't. A psychologist and a psychiatrist set the record straight. They say oftentimes folks use the two words interchangeably, but there's a big difference, especially when it comes to credentials and training. Oh, and you might be disappointed about their office decor. We'll sort through the slew of misconceptions coming up right now on this episode of Healthcare Who Doesn't. for being here. First, Dr. Nathan Smith. He's a psychiatrist. He's been with the University of Alabama at Birmingham for 33 years on faculty with the Department of Psychiatry. He's held numerous roles with the department and done extensive work in education. He was the Assistant Dean for Admissions and Student Services. He's currently a retiree working as a vice chair for education and training. And I had to add in your retiree, but really it was for a month. I don't know if that counts. Does it? It doesn't? No. I work full time. (laughs) Dr. James Baños, he's with the University of Alabama at Birmingham as well, and in private practice. Formerly a faculty member in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He was formerly the Assistant Dean for Student Success as well, and now splits his time between an administrative role in medical education and private practice. Let's start with you, Dr. Banos. What is a psychologist? Well, if you go really broad, there's all kinds of psychologists that don't participate in healthcare, which we're not really talking about as much today, but developmental, experimental, industrial, organizational. Um, if you're talking psychologists within healthcare, you're usually talking about a clinical psychologist, a neuropsychologist, or a counseling psychologist, or specific specialties. Duties wise, uh, I'm probably not the best representative in that my practice is very assessment oriented. So I do a lot of psychological assessment, neuropsychological assessment. So evaluation for, to arrive at a diagnosis or determine functional limitations or to drive treatment recommendations. Um, but obviously a good number of psychologists out there are obviously doing psychotherapy. And that can be psychotherapy for traditional mental health disorders like depression or other things. But you'll also see a lot of psychologists participating in things that might not be you know, strict mental health things like smoking cessation, grief groups, um, any number of those kinds of things that are kind of mental illness adjacent, but maybe more normal life experiences. I frankly am only familiar with clinical psychology. 
When you get out into the real world, the, the differences blur a little bit. Uh, in graduate training programs, there's a kind of specific tracks. Um, clinical psychology and neuropsychology is kind of a sub subspecialty of clinical psychology, but clinical psychology is generally oriented more toward traditional mental health disorders, whether it's assessment or treatment. Counseling psychology historically has been oriented more toward maybe people who are going through normal life events but struggling with those like grief or loss or life adjustments and things like that. The reality is once you get a few years out of graduate school and you look at the settings people are working, clinical and counseling psychologists start to overlap a good bit uh, beyond that point. Dr. Smith, would you tell us a little bit about psychiatry? Psychiatrists typically work uh, either as individual psychiatrists maintaining their own offices or in groups that can be small or large. Uh, In an academic center like UAB, we have a department of psychiatry that includes not only psychiatrists who do clinical work, but research as well. But if you focus just on the clinical psychiatrist, uh, they all have clinical responsibilities that vary across different kinds of clinics. I work in a setting where I see individual patients uh, that come to see me and I take care of their needs. I also work in two resident clinics where there are residents involved and they do initial contact with patients during the sessions and then I will come in at the end and we will put things together and come up with a plan. There are other clinics that operate a little differently in that they will have nurse practitioners, licensed social workers and other individuals who do the frontline work and collaborate with a psychiatrist. That's the model in our community psychiatry program. There are other settings where psychiatrists work that are a little more specialized clinically, uh, including addiction. Primarily, uh, psychiatrists are the people that you see when you have needs that will likely include medication. That's really, frankly, the only difference that I know, but we heard a lot of similarities. I'm curious if the educational requirements are also very similar. Would you mind touching on that, Dr. Smith? For psychiatry, training involves both psychopharmacology, neuroscience, and usually psychotherapy. Most programs cover all three areas to some degree. There are different emphases depending on the particular program you go to and train. Skills that you need involve being able to conduct good interviews and have good rapport with patients. So there clearly is a need for developing skills that you would use doing psychotherapy, even if you're just going to be treating people with medications. You actually become a doctor. That's correct. Okay. So you're a doctor and... You have your own name, psychiatrist. I was trying to marry psychologist and a doctor. Both require a graduate degree Mm -hmm. of some sort. Psychology, usually you get a PhD. And to become a psychiatrist, you have to get a degree in medicine before you can do training in psychiatry. You don't have to get a PhD also, right? That's correct. Okay. Did we miss anything, Dr. Banos? What are some of the specifics becoming a psychologist? Yeah, psychologist is a is a very different training route, even though we end up practicing in similar areas. And it's interesting because I think you'll see some of the different ways psychiatrists and psychologists practice kind of res- 
reflects that training background that they come through. To be a psychologist, you do need a doctoral degree, which is usually going to be a PhD, although there are uh, what's called a PsyD, which is a, a specialized degree that's in psychology specifically. The PhD tends to be a little bit more broadly academic, and we usually have a research component in the training uh, for just about everybody who goes through it. So you usually have to get a master's degree along the way, then you'll get a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, as an aside, I will mention uh, you can become a, a counselor with a master's degree, but you would not be called a psychologist uh, specifically without a doctoral degree. On the issue of being a doctor, uh, the way I think about it is one of us is, we're both doctors, but one of us is a physician and one of us is not. The training program lengthwise uh, for clinical psychologists, uh, I went through a joint master's and doctoral program together, and it was a five-year program that was two years for the master's degree two years for the doctoral degree, which included a doctoral dissertation, which is something you would not do in medical school, uh, so that's a research component. And then a one-year clinical internship, but during the course of that master's and doctoral degree, we also do clinical rotations um, at various clinical sites. In my program, we had a psychology training clinic where we did psychotherapy with individuals there in the training clinic. And, uh, and we get our doctoral degree after the completion of the internship. Some of us go on and complete a, a little bit additional training, like I went through a postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology to specialize as a neuropsychologist, uh, but that's not required. When do you begin your, your clinical rotations as a psychology student? It depends a little bit on the program. In my program and the things I was studying and the mentor that I worked with, I started helping out with assessments my first semester of graduate school, but that was very highly supervised and, and not very independent at all. Um, our real clinical rotations probably started as I transitioned to the doctoral program, so two years in after I'd gotten the master's degree working in the training clinic. I had an externship placement. I went to the Biloxi VA. I was in Mississippi. I got to work in a VA healthcare system. I got to work in one of the local hospitals. So in that sense, it's a little bit like medical school where there's a little bit more coursework on the front end and then a little bit more of the, the clinical rotations afterward. Dr. Smith, were you able to start clinical rotations pretty early on? I think you have to go back and go through medical school training first and sort of see how that unfolds because the first two years of medical school are typically basic sciences, physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, things of that sort. And then the last two years typically are spent in clinical areas, among which you would do psychiatry as a required rotation that would last from four to six weeks. You could also do internal medicine, OBGYN, surgery, medicine, so forth. When you graduate from medical school, you would start in a residency, and the first day you show up, you would have patients. You would typically work in a setting where there would be close supervision. Often it's an inpatient unit where there's an attending present most of the day. You sort of evolve into other areas, work in the ED, doing consults on medical floors, eventually seeing your own outpatients, but under supervision of a faculty member. There's a progressive stage process where you, as a resident, go from having very close supervision to being less supervised as you go through the program. And in your fourth year, you actually assume the role of an acting attending, uh, where you actually have a team that you work with. It is supervised by a psychiatrist, but you have a, a whole lot of say in, in how the team is run and how patients are managed. And can I add, I think Please. Dr. Smith makes a good point there that when you go through medical school, he had to learn everything and all of medicine before he reached that point where it narrowed down just to a focus on psychiatry yeah. when they start a residency. When I started my graduate program, it was a psychology training program. So I knew 
as long as I can cut it and make it through the coursework, I will come out the other end a psychologist. But medical students definitely have a lot more broad hoops across all of medicine that they have to jump through before they get to that specialization. And that says something about how psychiatrists and psychologists are different in terms of practice. Mm-hmm. There are psychologists that work in medical settings, but the psychiatrists who work, say, in a medical setting on a surgical or a medical floor would have responsibilities that would differ from the psychologist and that we would be responsible for knowing about the patient's laboratory reports, their x-rays, all the other things that are going on in terms of their medical condition, because we would need to know that in order to make treatment effective and good clinical decisions. A psychiatrist who works in a hospital or another inpatient facility might have different responsibilities than, than someone who is in private practice. It's a different place to practice. Sure. Uh, and the practice sort of is shaped by the patients who you see. If you're doing consultation psychiatry, for instance, you would be seeing patients that technically are not yours. They are internal medicine doctor, or family medicine doctor, or surgeon, and your role is a consultant in that setting. But you're working with people who have obviously medical conditions which need to be understood and incorporated into making treatment decisions about medication and other ways in which we treat people in that, in that setting. I think we've already done a really great job of distinguishing the two professions and and discussing some of the differences. Again, medicine always comes to mind and the distinction of the psychiatrist also having a medical degree. The fact that a psychiatrist also has to perform surgery or do a pelvic exam is is pretty mind-blowing to just think about, um, you know, in their training. When you're discussing assessment, Let me go quickly to testing, diagnostic testing for, you know, ADD or say you want to get extended time in school and you have to get tested for that. Do both of you conduct testing in that regard? I'll jump in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The psychologist who does a lot of testing. Yeah. First of all, when I was, you know, in advance of coming into this thinking, what, what are the things that we absolutely do not overlap in at all? The biggest things that come to my mind are prescription medications, but then there are some psychologists in some states who have prescription privileges, um, admissions privileges to a hospital, although there are a few, very few exceptions to that around the country with our psychologists who have limited admitting privileges. Um, A medical treatment like electroconvulsive therapy is not something a psychologist would have any role in. Um, But after that, it gets a little murky, and I think you're talking about on average, what does a psychologist and psychiatrist typically do? Um, So I think typically most psychiatrists do not do a lot of psychometric testing, although there are a few who do. And when I say psychometric testing, I'm talking anything from IQ tests to academic achievement tests, personality tests, you know, long paper and pencil type inventories. Um, And because psychology kind of developed out of a more academic and research world, statistical uh, world and things like that, they were involved in the development of, you know, some of those early tests that measure individual differences, like the emergence of intellectual testing and things like that. So that is definitely, you know, something that I feel is part of my value as a psychologist, even though, like I said, there are some psychiatrists who do a little bit of that. And psychiatrists, well, I'll let Dr. Smith speak for psychiatrists as to how they conduct assessments, a little bit more clinical and, and interview-based. We actually use screens a lot. Uh, simple questions, seven to nine questions typically. Some we use for ADHD, have 18 you have to respond to. But typically, that's as extensive as we go in terms of doing things that would involve 
any kind of thing that looks close to a, a paper and pencil test. Yeah. The test that we do would be ordering electrolyte panel, uh, thyroid functions, liver functions, things of that sort, in order to assess the patient's health in, in terms of being able to prescribe medications. Medications that we prescribe also have effects on different organ systems in, in ways that are not good. So we have to continually follow certain things such as LFTs and for people who are on certain medications because they cause you to gain weight. And we would follow indicators of diabetes such as an A1C. So our testing is more about medical things rather than things that have to do with anything strictly psych- psychological. I, I, I do want to clarify something. Please. So um, in my role as a psychiatrist, my scope of practice is limited to things that have to do with mental illness and mental health. So I would not do a vaginal exam. I would n- not uh, even treat somebody's blood pressure necessarily. Right. Within the scope of my practice, I can treat the things that fall into certain diagnostic category, categories that we call mental illness or uh, mental conditions. Right. My remark earlier was, was more geared towards the training these individuals have gone through medical school and done the same sort of training as right. as doctors who might be in primary care. And that's, I mean, that's pretty comprehensive, but they might not have the knowledge that you have about prescription medication. The distinction I was making, and I, I did understand that you were talking about medical school, mm-hmm. but I wanted people to understand sure. my, <laughs> what psychiatrists Got to be clear about it. Right. Do in, in clinical practice. The knowledge of psychiatric problems and medications varies depending on the specialty. Internists and family medicine doctors typically are quite skilled at treating depression, anxiety, possibly PTSD. They typically are not skilled and don't have the resources to treat people with serious mental illnesses such as schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder or serious bipolar disorder. In terms of treating anxiety and depression, my sense is that they typically have some antidepressants, typically SSRIs that they're comfortable using, maybe one NSRI that they're comfortable using. And so they will initiate treatment with those medications. If the patient does not respond, typically, in a timely fashion, they will then make a referral to psychiatry, but only after they have probably tried one or possibly two medications. And I would imagine that that makes it easy for some folks who might not have access to mental health care. Correct. The majority of antidepressants in this country are, are prescribed by uh, primary care doctors. Really? So they are the front line for treating conditions like depression, uh, anxiety disorders, as well as for hypertension and, and diabetes as well. So they're the front line. They usually are good at taking care of uh, more straightforward cases. Uh, and uh, refer when it gets beyond the scope of their knowledge and practice. I have an interesting role in that kind of dynamic also. There is one kind of patient I see that Dr. Smith will never, ever, ever see in his career, and that is people who refuse to see a psychiatrist. (laughs) Um, I do see a certain subset of people who... uh, A psychologist for them, either they didn't have a choice to come see me because they needed testing for school accommodations or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, or they found seeing a psychologist a little bit less threatening, but they really have this barrier that's feel much more threatened seeing a psychiatrist. So they may be getting medication from their primary care physician, and so 
I can meet with that person, spend a little bit more time trying to find out what is the issue there. Um, if there's some particular concern that they have, I work closely with psychiatry, so I might be able to talk them through a little bit more, you know, what they might expect and what the outcomes might be. And, you know, they may just say, still decide, hey, that's not the route I want to go. But I consider myself a little bit of that kind of gateway person to the, you know, somebody who might not be ready to jump in to be seen by a psychiatrist. But when I see them, I feel like, wow, they, they really may need to give that some thought. Sure. We, we actually have psychologists embedded into the emergency department, the CL service, and in primary care at Kirkland Clinic. Collaborative care is a kind of a growing approach to treating mental health problems, particularly in the VA. There are lots of good aspects to it because you show up at one place and you, you see the doctor, your primary care doctor, you see a psychiatrist, you see a psychologist, and sometimes you don't know who it is walking in the room. So it really does help in terms of being able to manage problems efficiently. Plus, often people who wouldn't, you know, cross the hall to see a psychiatrist, if you walk in the room, they're fine. <laughs> they, they see that you don't have warrants, I guess, and they're fine. That's got to be it. Well, and you bring up a good point, because at a VA, veterans might have access to this. But for the common person who's trying to make a decision between, well, do I just go to my primary care physician and ask that person? Or do I seek out assistance from a professional like a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist? And I think that there might be some I don't know, confusion, because a lot of times, again, those words are used interchangeably. I think it's really interesting how that's also evolved. And you have things like better help now, where you call and they set you up with someone. Those folks are not prescribing medication, to be clear. So so those are not psychiatrists on, on those websites that hook you up with a therapist, correct? Yes, uh, although there are, during COVID, there were certain groups or individuals who did have online treatment for psych- psychiatric problems and per- did prescribe medication. It is a valid way to approach problems. Sure. Uh, we do telehealth. During COVID, we did 100% telehealth uh, for outpatient, and now we still probably do a third as uh, telehealth. But I think the, ones, the things you're speaking of are the there are these several different companies now that have yeah. uh, give you access to psychologists and, and counselors all over the country. We're talking about some of the differences and who folks should seek out if they're looking for certain services. Now we already discussed you, Dr. Banyos, and, and how you'd be the one for an IQ test or a personality test. But if you're depressed, you might just want to go to your primary care physician. So when would I elect to see one of you all? And how would I know which one of you to go to? Dr. Banyos? That's an interesting question because I, I don't usually think on the other side of the referral process. <laughs> yeah. They just show up at my door. <laughs> um, and I I don't think there's an easy answer to that, and I think that's one of the barriers and reasons people kind of don't know where to start, don't know who to go to. Um, I think starting with a primary care physician, if you're not sure, is great, but some people aren't even aware that they can talk to these things about these things to a primary care physician. So I think for both of us, I would probably say uh, part of that first contact you have with someone is finding out have they landed in the right spot and are there either separate services they need or overlapping services. I can get somebody with any mental health or any mental status, acute crisis, whatever, and that's one of the first things I have to decide. What of this is within my purview? Do they need to see a psychiatrist? How 
acutely or how badly do they need a psychiatrist and what can I do to help make that happen versus this is something that we can handle versus sort of in between that you might want to consider but not absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. You don't always end up seeing the patient who comes into your door because maybe there is a better match for them somewhere else and seeking a different sort of service. And you mentioned, Dr. Smith, more severe mental health issues. Psychiatrists treat the whole range of problems, everything from fairly mild depression to uh, severe psychotic illness such as schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. People with severe mental illness typically end up in a community mental health setting. They have the resources to treat people with those conditions, uh, whereas as an individual psychiatrist practicing in the community would not have those resources, they typically need social workers, uh, case management, things of that sort that I would not have access to. The frontline person may actually be a psychologist or a licensed social worker, hmm. but they will be working under the supervision of a psychiatrist. There are people with schizophrenia that see individual psychiatrists. There are a few individuals who are stable enough, particularly with certain kinds of schizophrenia, such as paranoid schizophrenia, mm -hmm. uh, who work and are very effective in their work as long as they're getting appropriate treatment. Right. And so they might see a solo practitioner in the community, or they, they often come to our resident clinic and we, we see them uh, just like we would see someone who has depression or anxiety uh, because primarily they're there to get the prescription for medication and our job is to help make sure that they're tolerating it, that's being effective and it's not causing harm. If they're compliant and can maintain that behavior, uh, they can do well in an outpatient setting that's fairly low in terms of not having social workers or case management. Typically, more severe mental illness requires a lot more resources, including housing and the ability to help people get into vocational settings that, uh, where they will have someone that's a specialist in that in the in the clinic. And a lot of collaborative work. Yeah, I would I would say uh, psychologists will also work with that full range of of mental illness and mental health, but in a different capacity. You know, especially as you get to those higher acuity levels different capacity, and I think you said the key word is more collaborative and more interdisciplinary. The more serious it is, the less you can be kind of siloed doing your own things. So, you know, with serious mental illness, psychologists may still conduct some psychometric assessment to help inform a psychiatrist, but you're usually not going to do that in isolation and, you know, not in support of a psychiatrist. Um, you usually wouldn't do like traditional psychotherapy with some of the major mental illnesses like schizophrenia, but you might do coping skills, uh, family support type interventions. Uh, so a little bit different skill set, but again, with something like that, you can't have people working in, you know, on their own in different silos. It has to be much more coordinated at that level. It sounds like both of you can do psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and really when it comes down to it, you, you might just want to go to your primary care physician because it can be daunting to take that first step. Do you have any advice for someone kind of at a loss as to what to do? I would suggest that they start where they're comfortable. And typically that's with someone they already have a relationship with, which would be their primary care doctor, hopefully. Yeah. That person can do an assessment and determine if it's something that they're able to manage in their clinic, often with the help of a psychologist, if it is something that is more complicated, more complex, uh, they often will refer someone pretty soon to, to see a psychiatrist or maybe to a specialized psychologist. I would agree with that. And if somebody really wants to go something mental health specific and they're not sure, I recommend that 
people go to someplace multidisciplinary. So, you know, like a UAB psychiatry where you have psychologists, you have psychiatrists, you'll have social workers, I'm guessing, in the capacity okay. also, where an intake person, even maybe even the first person who answers the phone, you can tell them a little bit and they can help route you to who might be most appropriate. Or if you land in the wrong spot, you're just down the hall maybe from somebody yeah. to get you quickly routed into it. You know, with me in private practice right now, I'm kind of isolated. So if you come to me and you really needed a psychiatrist, there's a few more hoops to jump through to get you to that than going to a, a multidisciplinary setting. That's true. And we do have an access center, and they are trained people to distinguish what might be the first most appropriate care for an individual. But if someone is asking to see a psychiatrist, they will be allowed to do that. You can you can self-refer to a, yourself to a psychiatrist or a a psychologist within, within our system. I want to get more towards the collaboration. You do it inpatient, but I'm guessing that there's also collaboration in private practice. I can talk about my own current experience as, Please. as an example. Yes. Um, because of my role, I, I see a lot of individuals who have ADHD. Uh, I am the physician who sees medical students at UAB, residents, and actually also faculty. Uh, primarily. So it takes a while to explain, but there is not unusual for someone to end up in medical school with undiagnosed ADHD. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also not uncommon for someone to get through medical school, then show up in residency and have problems that clearly are disrupting their training that are accountable to having ADHD. So I don't treat ADHD by myself. We have a uh, neuropsychologist who does assessments, and there are also psychologists who do CBT for ADHD that we work with. The majority of my patients that I see, at some point or another, I'm working collaboratively with a psychologist. It's a lot more often than I would have thought. It's probably not typical. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing it, so right. you have to be prepared, I guess, for those interprofessional relationships. Yes. Dr. Banos, what kind of experience do you have? I actually did my internship at UAB. That was, well, 23 years ago, <laughs> I think. Um, but one of the reasons I came to UAB, one of the big draws, is I was, I was impressed how well psychology and psychiatry were integrated, not just in the Department of Psychiatry, but throughout the med school. It was a younger medical school where psychology had already been embedded from the get-go, so it wouldn't, some of the older school psychology gets shoehorned into a psychiatry department later, and you know, there can be ruffled feathers. It was such a great training experience to really learn a good collaborative relationship because that is a skill set that mm. I know when I meet a psychologist or a psychiatrist that didn't have a great training experience in collaborating that closely. Mm. And, uh, and for me, I think the biggest things I learned was what, what are the things that I do? What are the assessment tools especially? What do I have to offer that's most of value to a psychiatrist that might complement what they do and kind of maximizing my value that way? And that, you know, when I worked at UAB in, you know, multidisciplinary settings, that was the best thing for me is really feeling like you both brought your own piece of something to the table. It's not an adversarial relationship or anything like that. So, you know, one of the luxuries I have is time, that when I do an assessment, I may spend three, four, five, seven, eight hours with one person, mm. and that's just not realistic for a psychiatrist to spend that kind of time. So I can dig much more deeply, summarize a lot of information, I dilute it to some key points and feed it forward to a psychiatrist. They don't have to spend four or five or six hours. Um, and did I hear a why not? Yeah, why, why do you have more time? Um, partially just systemic factors and how things work and uh, 
you know, when you have psychiatrists that prescribe medications and the sheer numbers of people who have that need, mm -hmm. it's not smart to put your psychiatrist spending seven hours with somebody and having lots of people unable to access services. And psychologists and their assessment, I mean, we're used to that. We've always done those lengthy assessments. I and see. so I think it's as much kind of good allocation for the training that each party has. Um, and then using that, what you can obtain in that amount of time to kind of complement each other's services. And, and I would add that psychologists have skills that psychiatrists don't have for doing assessment. That's the beginning of any treatment, but psychologists have, let's be honest, more sophisticated tools <laughs> for, Sometimes. Doing, for doing assessments than psychiatrists do. Like I say, we use screens, you know. So I rely on psychologists with patients who have complex problems, uh, often pain and depression, often trauma. So there may be three different mental health individuals working with, with this patient. Uh, one is me and then the two are in other departments here at UAB. It's important to have those collaborative relationships and know how to use them effectively. It seems like second nature, almost like a requirement. I would say that UAB is a little atypical. Hmm. Okay. For individuals who work in private practice in the community, there are people, psychiatrists who are solo practitioners who treat, treat ADHD and they, they can do it effectively, mm -hmm. but maybe not with the kind of aggressiveness and expeditionness that we can here because we are sort of set up to take care of people quickly in certain settings like professionals, medical students, residents and uh, physicians and nurses and other practitioners. Uh, those people can't wait, you know, for six months for an appointment. That's one of the unique things about coming to a specialized place. Then again, you can get treated for most psychiatric conditions in the community by an individual practitioner, and they can deliver excellent care if it doesn't get too complicated. Right. This is always one of my favorite parts of the conversation, and that's misconceptions, because sometimes they're just funny. Other times, it's kind of sad. We've discussed some already. What have you heard, Dr. Banos, throughout your career as far as misconceptions about psychologists or psychiatrists? I guess the most obvious one would be the misconception that I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> I, and even this week, I was seeing a patient and her cell phone rings, and she basically, I can't talk right now. I'm with the psychiatrist. Mm. And we had just had the conversation a little bit before. So, you know, are you or are you not a psychiatrist? And are you or are you not a real doctor? Mm. Um, almost to the point that's a running joke among psychologists. A real doctor. A real doctor. A physician. Ah. So you have the conversation. I'm not a physician. I don't have an MD degree. I have a PhD, which is a doctoral degree. And people will either understand that distinction very clearly or glaze over while you're explaining and it's not that big a deal to them to understand the distinction. Um, the biggest thing for me, rather than trying to get them to understand the distinction between the degrees, is make sure they understand what I can and cannot do for them. Sure. Um, that I have people come in, think they're going to get an MRI when they see me, that they're going to leave with medications, that we're going to do lab tests, do a blood draw. And so those are the kind of things I need to be mindful of and make sure I address that very quickly and make sure they know what I do as a psychologist, what a psychiatrist might do, and that if they have needs that I can help them, you know, yeah. with a referral or find out what they need, but just make sure they understand that difference. And like you said, you, you do spend a lot of time. It's about a, 
50 minutes versus, you know, you could have a 15-minute appointment with a psychiatrist. I do have people that think they're coming to see me for 15 minutes and have something planned and the look on their face when they find out they're going to be there for four hours <gasps> speaks to the misconception. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Smith, you have anything crazy like that? So I, I think working at a setting like UAB, there's there's less, less of mm-hmm. sort of misconceptions by the patients that I see. Things that's often a misconception is this that psychiatrists don't do psychotherapy. Well, some do. Um, I actually still see some patients for, for 50 minutes sessions of psychotherapy. That's a luxury I can do because I'm retired and kind of set my own schedule. I don't know that there's any other colleagues that are psychiatrists here who do that. Um, in the community, there are psychiatrists whose practice is totally psychotherapy. So. The misconception is that psychiatrists only prescribe medications is not accurate, but it's, it is what most psychiatrists do primarily. Not totally inaccurate, but not accurate. Right, right. I was told that it was way too expensive to go to a psychiatrist for psychotherapy. The insurance will pay the same, pretty much. That's great to know. It may cost the insurance company more to see one or the other, <laughs> but the co-pays are typically the same. We don't care about yeah. that. Can I address another misconception please, that please. just occurred to me? I think I can very comfortably speak for Dr. Smith on this one, is when people find out you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they get nervous and, are you analyzing me? And it's usually said in a joking fashion, but mm. sometimes I can see the discomfort. And when in conversation, it keeps coming up, they keep referencing that I'm a psychologist. This is not in a clinical setting. This right, is just right. out in the world. You can tell it's at the top of their mind and they can't quite put it aside just yet. And so the short answer to that is no, we are not analyzing you. We do this all day long at work. Um, You know, if you meet a dermatologist at a cocktail party, do you panic that they're looking at your skin? Maybe, maybe not. Um, So this is not a hobby. This is our profession. And my standard joking response to people is if I haven't asked for your insurance card, you can be safe that I'm not doing anything professional with you. That's That's a really good one. So my experience is that Often, I, when people ask me that I don't know uh, what you do, I, I say I'm a physician. Mm. And if they let it go at that, I'm, we're fine. But if they say, well, so what, what, what do you practice? I say psychiatry. And it's like, oh. Wait, you're a physician? See, I don't have that refuge. I just tell them I'm a psychologist. I'm not a very good one. <laughs> and that usually quiets them down. <laughs> but, I, but the line that I use about is, you know, I'm not trying to read your mind. Yeah. Uh, unless you're paying, I'm not working. Yeah. There's a very specific nervous laughter we get. (laughs) Or or, or silence sometimes, just, oh. (laughs) As the daughter of a psychologist, there's always a running joke like, oh, that's why you're so messed up, or, oh, I guess she's been analyzing you your whole life. I appreciate you saying that, (laughs) because there's also a reputation that psychiatrists have, at least, that all their children are messed up, Mm -hmm. and they're all in bad marriages, which is... Not true. Not true. Probably at the same rate of other professionals who do similar kinds of work. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's but our kids turn out okay, too. Yes. To clarify, I am not messed up because my mother was a psychologist. I found other ways on my own. <laughs> <laughs> what else haven't I asked you to that you think is important for folks to know about your profession or is important for prospective psychologists or psychiatrists to know? I think that um, 
if, if you're a young person and you're interested in mental health and practicing in some field of mental health, uh, go online and read reliable sources like the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association. Go to their websites because I know that they do on the APA website. They have lots of information for young people who are interested in psychiatry and it explains all the different steps you have to take, what kind of attributes are good if you want to be a psychiatrist. Uh, I would assume that's true for the uh, other APA as well. Yeah, and we're talking about the APA's American Psychiatric Association and American Psychological Association. Uh, I think a lot of people who want to go into mental health, especially when they're first in those stages of exploring, bring some of the misconceptions with them, and that's why you need to educate yourself and go talk to professionals in the field, you know, read those things, because I will hear somebody, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to med school and be a psychiatrist because I love to help people and can't wait to do 50-minute therapy all day long every day. <laughs> When I encounter those people, that's part of what I do is be that resource to help them make sure you really think and reflect on what it is you want to do. Because some people have either the wrong idea for the profession they think they're choosing or they have a vague idea and it kind of all blends together. When you really push, you start to identify those distinctions that might steer them on one pathway or the other. I do tell people, it's like, yeah, this is all great and fascinating, but it comes a point when you got to get up and go into work and do this every day for a couple right. of decades. So spend that time on the front end making sure you understand what each role is and that you're gravitating to what it is that attracts you versus just sort of the title or a misconception of what you think that professional might do. Once you reach the college level, often their pre-health professional program will have opportunities for individuals to shadow physicians and I think in some cases psychologists and pharmacists. Universities and colleges do a good job typically at helping explain the differences in, in giving students an opportunity to, to explore in real time these different professions and see, see what the differences are. I want to ask you too, before I let you go, a lot of folks still assume that psychologists and psychiatrists perform psychoanalysis and that that is the main type of psychiatric or psychological care that, that is provided or the kind of therapy you receive. Uh, could. Could you clarify that? So either a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and in some cases social workers, can become psychoanalysts. That is a specialized training beyond getting you know, certified as a psychologist mm -hmm. or a psychiatrist. Um, it is an additional five to seven years of training typically. Wow. Uh, requires a lot of supervision. Uh, it is expensive, um, but it, it is, Something that's practiced both by psychiatrists and psychologists. There are some people who conduct psychoanalytic therapy here in Birmingham, but I don't know anybody that really does it full time. It is part of their practice typically. So then if it's not psychoanalysis that you two are doing, then what is it? Mostly cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy primarily is a focus today and other similar behavioral cognitive kind of therapies. Our residents have to learn at least three different psychotherapy models uh, as, as part of becoming a psychiatrist. Yeah, it, it gets down to theoretical orientation, and that's a little distinction between psychologists and psychiatrists is everybody has a theoretical orientation. Psychologists tend to fret and split hairs and identify more strongly with their psychiatrists just tend to go and do what they need to do. <laughs> and uh, and you do, it can be a little bit regional too, that there are some parts of the country where it might be easier to find people who practice psychoanalysis. 
um, around here, and I think a little bit of that is the influence of UAB, is you know, psychoanalysis is not a mainstream thing here. Um, historically, over the years, I think uh, reimbursement and insurance companies, uh, you know, they want shorter, more directed, more goal-oriented things, and that's kind of been a headwind for psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, but yeah, most of the people kind of in this region of the country are probably going to be broadly in that cognitive behavioral or something fairly similar to it. Right. So well, action oriented. And, and that gets back to a little bit. We're talking about finding the right professional to go to. Sure. Also, it's it's a lot to ask of somebody to know what their therapist's theoretical orientation <laughs> is in deciding when uh, you know a lot of people don't know what that is. But when you meet with somebody that you might be doing any kind of psychotherapy, making sure the approach they're going to use, you know, that they're explaining the approach and that it's something that you feel is going to be a good match for you and work for you. Excellent point. And, that it, and it makes, they can help you understand and it makes sense to you. Right. I'm glad you made that distinction. Psychoanalysis is, is a little bit, I don't want to say outdated, but um, there are not as many in practice, as you said. Unless you go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Then there you will find a lot of people who practice psychoanalysis as a full-time practice. It depends on how you do it. I mean, there's yeah. some more kind of modernized variants, and yes. I'm sure you can find the very old-school versions of it yeah, also. Right. If you, you, can, you can find them. Sure. But I'm glad we can set that one to rest. We're not all being psychoanalyzed. In... I don't have a couch. <laughs> no. no. In if fact, don't... I don't even have comfortable chairs. Yeah. <laughs> That's another one. You're not going to be reclining on a chaise lounge? No, no. Okay. Well, too bad. Cheers from Office Max or somewhere like that, I think. Thank you both for, for all of the time that you spent explaining and delving into what you do. You really shed some light on a lot of the differences, a lot of the similarities, as well as how you work with patients, which is most important. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the 2022 Interprofessional Leadership Fellows with the Center for Interprofessional Education and Simulation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in association with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UAB's Marnix E. Hearsing School of Medicine. Music and effects provided by YouTube Studios Audio Library and pixabay.com. Until next time, this is Catherine Mazone with Healthcare Who Does It. Thanks for listening. Thank you.